Well, hey, welcome to, uh, welcome to the last core class of the year. Uh, my name is Nathan Wagnon. I serve on staff here at Watermark uh, on the equipping team, and I also oversee the, the six core classes that we offer throughout the year. So uh, just to uh, promo core classes, because this is a core class, um, we'll start again uh, over the next calendar year in January. Uh, we'll start the six classes um, all over again. And so if you um, have not taken all six core classes, then uh, would definitely encourage you to. That's why we call them core classes, because we believe that um, every member of Watermark, in order to be uh, effective in uh, as being a minister of the gospel, we feel like these are six area, areas that we feel like each member of our church should be competent, or at least growing in. Um, so that's why they're called core classes. Um, the, the, the first one we'll offer next year is Cover to Cover. Anybody ever taken Cover to Cover before? Um, it's a great class that kind of just gives you a, a, a broad 30,000-foot flyover of the, the narrative of, of the Bible. What does the Bible say? What's the story of the Bible? That's um, taught by Blake Holmes and Bobby Karate. So that'll be going on probably the end of January, early February. And then we'll go from there. We'll do, um, uh, let's see, there's Cover to Cover, Keys to Effective Bible Study, um, which is uh, how do you study your Bible. There's uh, Know What You Believe and Why, which is kind of our doctrine class, um, which is um, uh, the kind of the six essentials that we believe. Hey, yeah, you believe something like this, but do you know why you believe it and why that's important to, uh, to engaging our world effectively with the gospel? Uh, there's The Life of Christ, which is my favorite core class, just because it zeroes in on... Uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ, um, who is obviously central to all of history. And um, just we get a really good intimate look at his life, the death and resurrection. Um, there is the apologetics class, which just ended. I don't know how many of you guys took that one, but that one's called Answering the Tough Ones. And then we have uh, the evangelism class, which is the one you're sitting in. <laughs> so welcome to the evangelism class. Um, this is going to be uh, probably, this is the most practical of the core classes, and uh, we'll talk about that here in a minute when I introduce one of our other speakers. But uh, if you've taken the Life of Christ class this summer, and then the Answering the Tough Ones class the, over the last six weeks, seven weeks or so, then you've gotten a lot of me. <laughs> and you'll be glad to know that if uh, you have taken those, then Tonight is the only night that I will be uh, teaching this class. So, and there were great hallelujahs from among the people. <clears throat> so we do have uh, um, Ryan Wall, who is, has, uh, has led in our young adult ministry for a while, and it just has recently come on staff full-time. Um, and he's also the one who's put together and kind of championed this ministry here at Watermark called Unashamed. And Unashamed... Uh, I'll let him talk about here in a minute, but that's going to be uh, a, a part of this class. And uh, so there's going to there's a huge practical element. We're not just going to uh, talk to you about um, what is the gospel and the need to share the gospel and methodology to share the gospel. We're also going to push you out to where you're sharing the gospel, right? Um, because man, it'd be a huge miss if we all sat in here and talked about how we should go share the gospel and didn't actually do it. So, um, you know, if you've been around Watermark for five minutes, you know that we're going to push you out, right, um, 
to actually do it because, uh, you know, it was interesting. I heard one time a statistic. It said um, uh, 20% of lecture information, like uh, information given to you like through a microphone where someone's teaching and you're uh, listening, only 20% of that information is actually retained. Isn't that crazy? Um, when you're doing something, like I think over 80% of it is retained. So there's the practical element of, you know, I've always heard like, hey, throw them in the water, let them swim, <laughs> you know, like that's how you learn to swim. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Um, if that freaks you out, you've got four weeks to get comfortable with it before we're actually doing anything about it. And Ryan's probably going to uh, take some of that sting away. So just an overview of the class. Tonight, we're going to talk through gospel narrative. What is the gospel? What's the story of the gospel? Why is that so crucial to our understanding um, about what, what is evangelism? What is the expectation for evangelism? Why is, um, why is evangelism important? Um, then next week, um, Ryan's going to come uh, and kind of behind this talk and really uh, establish the need for evangelism, specifically here in Dallas, Texas. I mean, I know a lot of, a lot of you guys might be like, man, evangelism in Dallas, like Dallas is like the buckle of the Bible belt, you know, like everybody here is Christian, right? Um, and I think uh, you'll, you'll hear next week uh, reasons why uh, that's not necessarily the case at all. Um, and then week th- uh, we'll also kind of unpack the need for evangelism on a broader scale as well. But then week three will be uh, evangelism methodology, just walking you through real practical how-tos, um, That'll be taught by Joe Daly and uh, Ryan's wife, Allie, um, who is also going to uh, help teach this class. Um, Joe and Allie are both on staff. Allie serves on the young adult team, and Joe serves uh, with young adult uh, community. And then week four, we'll talk through tactics and then unashamed logistics because that will be the prep week pr- just prior to the unashamed weekend. Um, Joe and Allie will also walk you through that. And then November the 13th through the 15th, is the actual Unashamed Weekend. So to talk about that, I give you Ryan Wall. Y'all give it up for Ryan. Here's the man, the myth, the legend. Hey, so we're uh, just really excited to get to spend some time with you guys talking through just practical ways uh, to share your faith with uh, and authenticity. And so um, I took a class very similar to this probably uh, four or five years ago. And I just remember the guy who uh, his kind of opening line is, uh, and is a, a big kind of burly guy, country guy, just said, uh, if you ain't fishing, you ain't trying. Uh, and he was talking about just evangelism specifically uh, in Matthew 4.19, um, then Jesus says to his disciples, you know, that um, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so in that, it just uh, convicted me that I have been uh, a believer for probably uh, 15 or 18 years at that stamp. Uh, at that point, but just was not doing a great job of engaging people with my faith uh, and didn't know how to do that uh, effectively. All I thought was just these weird and awkward conversations, and I knew that I didn't want to do those, and so I just uh, didn't engage a ton uh, verbally, and so I was serving kind of all over the community, uh, but was not putting words behind that. And so, Fast forward kind of a year, 18 months after that, just said, uh, I think that I'm missing it a little bit and want to do this effectively. I think the folks kind of around me are missing it a little bit. And so we started a ministry here to just um, help, as Nathan said, just take away some of that sting and just kind of awkwardness or stigmatism around uh, engaging 
and sharing our faith. And so uh, I just remember a uh, similar to what Nathan said just about um, lecture. I remember just saying, hey, if someone tells me how to do something, I'm going to forget it. Uh, if they show me how to do it, I might remember. Uh, but if they involve me, then I'll understand. And so we just hope to involve you guys in the process so we get to do it, kind of linking arms together and just say, hey, let me show you how I do it. Uh, and you can kind of watch and help me. Uh, and then let me watch you do it, and I'll help you. Uh, and so that we would just get to do that kind of together. And so that's the heartbeat uh, behind Unashamed. And so we'd love to invite you guys. We kind of have two uh, options to come uh, hang with us uh, for that weekend. And so uh, traditionally, we all uh, will take a bunch of folks and we'll stay together down at this uh, kind of missions retreat center um, in November down in North Oak Cliff. And so we'd invite you guys to come and do that. And so option one, come hang with us for the whole weekend. Uh, we get down there on Friday at about five or about 6.30 uh, through Sunday afternoon, and we do a whole bunch of stuff. We get to tour the city. Uh, we engage kind of in evangelism, and we walk you guys really through how to do that. We get to serve with some of our ministry partners. Um, and so you guys will get an email tomorrow that shows a little bit of information about that. Um, and just if you guys want to come with us for the whole weekend, uh, we'd love to have you. We get to eat together, laugh together, play together, uh, and serve together. Um, and then for some of you guys, uh, that may be a huge ask. You may just be hearing about that. You've already got kind of um, plans that weekend. Then we'd encourage you guys to come at least hang with us uh, for a few hours on Saturday afternoon. And so we'll kind of give you guys those details um, that look like from about 2 o'clock until about uh, 9 o'clock on Saturday. Then we'd love to have you guys come and hang with us. Um, and so you guys will get an email tomorrow with kind of those two options, some of the details. Um, but the weekend of November 13th through the 15th, we would love to have you guys come with us and just um, get to learn a little bit from us. And then also we'll just kind of push you and encourage you a little bit uh, to kind of do that with having uh, just the comfort and kind of security blanket of having me right there with you uh, as you're doing it. And so you can ask questions uh, and I can assure you uh, that the the first step in engaging in a spiritual conversation is just simply, you know, hey, my name's Ryan. Hey, Ryan. You know? And so we can make it way too complicated, <laughs> uh, but we're, I think that all you guys in this room can do that. And so we're just going to kind of start there, and we'll go uh, from there. And so I don't want you guys to get uh, too nervous about that, uh, but we'd really encourage you guys to come and jump in with us. And then the next thing uh, here is just we would encourage you guys, uh, I think in the back of the room, they've got the ability. There is a book called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven uh, that really helped me, uh, encourage me on just some practical ways to engage with people and why. Uh, and so if you guys want some kind of supplemental material throughout this uh, course, we would encourage you guys to pick that book up. Uh, I think they're for sale for five bucks in the back, uh, but it just talks about a guy that just has a heartbeat for engaging with people, uh, and then he just has some really practical ways and just kind of stories that you kind of start scratching your head about, man, this is a lot more simple than I've probably ever made it out to be. Uh, again, just taking the first step uh, and really trying to put a pebble on somebody's shoe instead of trying to uh, convert somebody on the spot. And so just what it looks like to do that. So we would encourage you guys to pick that up, and then you'll get some more information from uh, Sylvia about how you guys can jump in with us for the Unashamed Weekend. So thank you, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. <clears throat> Here, I got it. I got it. All right. So, uh, yeah, give it up for Ryan. Ryan. <clears throat> Ryan Rawl. Wald. Man, the myth. He is somewhat of a legend around here. Um, 
So yeah, that, again, that class is not mandatory. We're not going to like put a taser on you, you know, and, and shock you into it. Um, but I will tell you, just like I already said, um, you, if you don't do some aspect of that weekend, whether it's the whole thing, which we'd highly encourage you to do to get the full experience, or at least that Saturday afternoon, then you will be missing something extremely fundamental about this class. <laughs> so if you signed up to take the class, then take that next step and sign up for Unashamed. Um, would highly encourage you to do that. All right? Well, hey, let me, uh, let me pray for our time, and then we'll, we'll dive into our content for tonight. Well, Father, you... We, we, we praise you um, not only because you have created us in your image, but because you sent your Son to restore us, to empower us to live um, the way that we were always intended to live. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of, of, of deity in bodily form. That he projects you to us and is one with you. He told us in, um, in John's narrative about his life that um, there is only one teacher, and I'm definitely not him. So, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we invite you here. We invite you to teach. We are your students. And so let this next 70 minutes or so um, be a holy moment whereby you reorient our minds toward the gospel, that we might see and understand and believe, that that belief would drive everything that we do. It is for your name and your glory that I pray these things. Amen. Well, hey, um, here's the thing. When you think about evangelism, a lot of times I feel like, uh, and even in my own life, as I think back on my experience with evangelism, uh, being a, you know, the awkward junior high kid and going on some kind of like church youth, you know, uh, evangelism explosion or something where I remember one time, in fact, we were in Grapevine, Texas. Um, I, I lived in Arkansas, but we drove down, my youth group drove down and we stayed in people's houses for this weekend and in literally in Grapevine, Texas. And we went around and it was like, you know, uh, it was the most awkward thing I've ever experienced, but literally they would drop us off on the end of a street corner and granted, this is like the early 90s, so a little different um, than now. Then you're just like, hey, drop some kids off on the street corner. Okay, see y'all in a few hours. But it literally was like, here's some tracks, and just go knock on people's doors. You know, we were like the Baptist Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, <laughs> we were going, and, and literally, I mean, I remember I was like a 13-year-old kid. And it wasn't like I had a youth pastor with me. It was just me and my friends, like... How awkward would that be if, if I knocked on your door, right? And, you, and I remember, I mean, some of the people opened the door and looked at us like, what are you, what, what, what are you doing here? And, uh, 
And I just remember being like, uh, so we have a track, uh, you know, we had like this four spiritual laws. We had the, you know, some of these uh, Baptist tracks where, uh, you know, the picture of the picture of the guy who's like falling into hell, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'm just like, man, this is not only is this awkward, but I have like this awkward message that God's going to like damn you to hell if you don't repent, you know, and uh, and so it was just this weird experience um, from that all the way to now where I feel like I have a little bit more mature understanding of what evangelism is and, and frankly, what the gospel is. And so I, I feel like hopefully tonight, um, you know, uh, everybody believes, but, but nobody believes in a vacuum. It's not like you come to the table, literally like a table, but it's not like you come to the metaphorical table of belief um, having no influences in your life at all. And so um, when we come to the table, we come to the table with a, with a ton of baggage, right? So um, if, if, someone, uh, if someone talks to us, then really uh, they, they really need to be a good listener in order to glean from us what we believe because what we believe is built out of the story that's been written on our lives over decades, right? Some of us more decades than others, right? <laughs> Where you at, David? There you are. <laughs> Sorry, brother. <laughs> You're just an easy target. Um, so some of us more decades than others, and, and, so, um, and more experiences than others, and more woundedness than others, and a lot more um, you, you know, viewing our world through really tainted glasses that are not informed by the gospel. And so um, the, the first point I want to make tonight is, is when, we're talking about the, when we're talking about evangelism, evangelism has to be put in its proper context. It has to be put in the right story. Because if evangelism is put in the wrong story, then what you end up getting is, is either a truncated or an abbreviated or a diminished gospel that you're presenting to someone, or it's not even the gospel at all. Why? Because it's in the wrong story, right? And so the story, it shapes the way we, it shapes the way we view God. It shapes the way we view ourselves. It shapes the, the, the world that we live, the way we view the world that we live in. It shapes everything about us. And what's funny is if you took the uh, apologetics class uh, from me, the Answering the Tough Ones class, you heard me say over and over and over again, right, um, is that, is that it's, it's not just enough to engage someone's question. You have to engage the person. Right? Because the question is, is the sterile part of it. The question can be asked by anybody. But when the person is asking the question, then, then that person is asking a question based on all of the experiences they're bringing to the table, and you have to sift through that stuff in order to get to the heart of why they're asking the question, in order to answer the question. I know that sounds really complicated, but um, if, if you've done this for five minutes, you, under, you understand what I'm talking about. And so um, a lot of times, but uh, well, to make the point, is that a lot of people are coming to the table and they don't even think about all of the factors that have, been, uh, that have come to bear on them coming t- to the table, they're not even thinking about the story. They're not even thinking about the things that are influencing the way that they view the world. They're not thinking about the way that they view God. In, in their minds, these, these, these are assumptions that largely and, and even entirely go unchallenged, Right? And so um, a, a lot of this stuff, um, maybe even for the first time, people might be like, man, I, um, which, by the way, if you heard that, that's upstairs there's a pool table, and I bet you one of the balls fell off and started bouncing on the floor. Um, <clears throat> anyway, if you've never been to the fourth floor, there's a pool table up there. You should go play pool sometime. Um, anyway, 
Um, but a, a lot of, for people, the, the story that shapes the way that they view God themselves and the world that they live in, they've never even thought about that before. Um, and so they just believe things. And they never question like, huh, why do I believe that? So tonight, hopefully, um, we're going we're gonna to challenge that a little bit. And, and when you're talking about narrative, um, the, the little pithy saying is context is everything. right? So for example, um, if I say, anybody, any baseball fans in here? Raise your hands. Come on, get them high. I know you're probably Rangers fans, and I know you're probably depressed right now. Um, but if, you, if, you, if, if, if I say something like, paint the corner, what does that mean, baseball fans? Come on, loud and proud. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the pitcher hits the corner of the plate with the pitch. Sometimes they'll call a pitcher who does this really well like a Rembrandt or something like that, right? He's, he's painting the corners. Um, so you can say paint the corner in, in like an art class, and what does that mean? Yeah, you literally paint the corner of the picture, right? But if you're talking about, man, that guy's painting the corner on a baseball field, that, that now all of a sudden, that has an entirely different meaning. Do you see what I'm saying? You're saying the exact same thing, no, no different words, the exact same thing in two different contexts, and it means two totally different things. You tracking with me? All right? I'm saved means one thing in a story about going to heaven when you die or just avoiding hell, right? And I'm saved means something entirely different in the actual biblical narrative. Did you know that? Right? So when, somebody's, when somebody says, I'm saved in our cultural context, especially in the Bible Belt, just to personalize it for us, especially in Dallas, Texas, what is the story that do you think that that, 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 narrative, that, that statement is placed in? What's the narrative behind that? What do you think people mean when they say, I'm saved? Yeah. Okay, they ask Jesus into their heart. Somebody said that. Which, which consequentially means they're going to heaven when they die, Right? Um, even our diagnostic questions, which we're going to get to here in a minute, frame the, the narrative around this, like, right, on a scale of 1 to 10. Have you guys ever heard these before? On a scale of 1 to 10, how certain are you that if you died tonight that you would go to heaven, right? It's like, oh, well, I'm a 5, and everybody at Watermark goes, ah, you know, ah, you got to be a 10. <laughs> I mean, I, um, yeah, I'll get to that. Um, but just to, just to show you, like, the story is everything. A story is the thing that defines the words that we use. And, and again, like I said, a lot of times people don't even think about the story. They just assume. And frankly, they just assume because they've been discipled in that way for so long. It's, it's unchallenged. Well, I'm going to challenge it, okay? Um, so there, is this, there, is, there are two narratives I'm going to talk about tonight. One, the first one is the forgiveness-only narrative. All right? And in the forgiveness-only narrative, the end is heaven, or stated negatively, which is frankly what I think a lot of people end up doing, is just avoiding hell. Right? So the story is framed in the context of, um, hey, uh, kind of this Jonathan Edwards, which we'll get to him tonight as well, kind of this Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of an angry God. Like there's this vengeful God who, if you don't repent, if you don't receive his son Jesus and, and receive Jesus' death for you, then, then when you die, he's going to punish you in hell forever, right? Um, and that's kind of the, um, the way that a lot of, for, for a long time, the fundamentalist church at least, um, was framing the conversation. 
was, hey, you better repent because judgment's coming, all right? Um, I mean, you see some, even today, some extreme factions of, of what people would call um, themselves Christian. I don't think that they are. I don't think they're Christian at all. But people like uh, the people from like Westboro Baptist Church in, in Kansas who are p- always picketing saying, hey, God's going to, you're going to burn in hell. These kinds of things where it's like, hey, um, I, I almost want to walk up to him and be like, I, I, just look at your numbers. I don't think that's very effective, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think those kind of people that you want to uh, reason with. Um, but uh, whatever. So in the forgiveness only narrative, the end is heaven. So you either go to heaven or you go to hell. And, and the conversation is framed around that fact, all right? Secondly, <clears throat> the means is forgiveness. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, Jesus came, died, forgave your sins so that you could what? What's that? Real loud and proud. Yeah, so that you can go to heaven when you die. Jesus, um, we, we ticked God off, and he's going to send us all to hell. And then Jesus came and died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. So, so it's almost like uh, uh, evangelism becomes this means by which we encourage people to secure for themselves like this celestial real estate for themselves, right? Um, hey, get, make sure you get your corner, your little mansion in heaven um, uh, so that when, when there's like a, a, bar- a barbecue out on the streets of gold, you, you can be there for the party kind of thing, right? Um, it's, it's this... Uh, um, this weird um, kind of ethereal sky palace view of, of heaven, which is also not biblical, but um, we'll get to that as well. Thirdly, the distinction is made between a Christian and a disciple. Um, as someone who, studied, who has, has studied discipleship for a long time, this is like uh, fingernails on a chalkboard for me, uh, so I need to make sure that I, I don't go off on this and burn up all my time. But I'll just, just suffice it to say, um, uh, what ends up happening is, is because a lot of, uh, there's a lot of scare tactics where, whereby people are, are making an emotional decision to be like, I don't want to go to hell, so yeah, I'll accept Jesus. Um, and, and, and frankly, too, um, the narrative of forgiveness only does not foster a uh, naturally foster a discipleship to Jesus because all people are interested in is celestial real estate. So once that's secured for them, then, I mean, I could just go on living like I have. There's no real reason for me to, to functionally um, shift in any way because I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. I've got my fire insurance, as some of you may have heard before, right? Um, and so... Uh, what ends up happening is, is either one of two things. Um, one is people either become uh, licentious, which is basically like a, just the license to do whatever you want. And so they, they grab their fire insurance card and say, man, whew, thank God I'm not going to hell, which is really um, totally different than someone saying, thank God I'm going to heaven, right? Um, it's different. They're saying, no, thank God I'm not going to hell. Um, I, now I can just get on with my life and live the way that I want to live. So that's kind of the licentiousness. That's one extreme that people can tend toward. The other extreme is that um, is is this idea of, and that would be someone that they would say, well, that person's a Christian, but he's not really a disciple. And I'm like, oh my. Um, so that person's a Christian, but not really a disciple. And then someone would say, but the disciple is is the person who's trying really hard to be like Jesus. And so discipleship um, really gets... Uh, diminished and, and, and watered down to uh, really a life of trying hard to change your behavior because Jesus has forgiven you, right? Man, 
Jesus came and died uh, um, a, a perfect death for me. And so, man, thank God for that. Now I, I really need to like get busy for him. There, there's almost this like underlying sense of I need to pay him back kind of thing. That's like, all right, I'm, now I'm going to work really hard um, and, and try hard to change my behavior. Um, I, I taught an entire seminar on this one time um, called Following Jesus, uh, Principles of Christian Discipleship. You can find that online if you want to, um, about why you trying hard to change your behavior does not work. It's, it never works. Um, but we'll talk a, a little bit more about that when we go through the other narrative um, that I think is biblical. All right, the fifth point is that, is that in this view, God is often viewed as distant and, and, and transactional. Right? So it's like, okay, Lord, please don't send me to hell. <laughs> um, I'll accept Jesus, um, and, and then I, I guess we're good. Um, it, it becomes this transactional type Christianity, like, okay, you were a sinner, you were guilty. Okay, now you're not guilty anymore. But, but there's really, um, and for, for someone who works in the area of apologetics and, and engages skeptics and agnostics and atheists on a consistent basis, I will tell you that this, the, the, some of the consequences of this type of narrative um, has caused people to be like, so wait a second, you want me to receive the grace of God, um, uh, of this God who if I don't receive his grace, that he's going to send me to hell um, for, things that, um, for things that I did, but he created me um, this way. Like, what in the world? And, and so just by, um, by, by consequence, people are... Um, that, frankly, this, this model is just, uh, um, uh, for a lot of people, just not attractive. Um, but I would also say that while parts of it are, are, are biblical, um, on a whole, it's just not. I don't think it's the gospel that Jesus was preaching. Um, then lastly, because God is often viewed as transactional, evangelism becomes transactional. Um, evangelism feels like you're trying to like, make a deal with someone. Right, like you're a used car salesman that's got the best. You're trying to get the best thing out on the lot, but the best thing you got is like a you know 1978 of El Camino or something like that. Right? You're like, uh, do you want this? Um, and 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 because God has forgiven you, and you're trying to be a good little girl and a good little boy, then you're out there doing it. Right? You're trying to like. Do good for, for God because he saved you. You're not going to hell anymore. Um, and so the best thing you got is, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, do you want this? Um, and it feels awkward. It feels weird. It feels like um, uh, a lot of times if we're honest with ourselves and living in this type of story and living in this type of narrative, it feels like we're trying to sell something that we're not really even sure we want, right? Um, and so that's the forgiveness-only narrative. I would say... Um, at least um, most aspects of that type of narrative has been predominant in the evangelical world for the last um, hundred years, really. And I'll show you why um, on this next slide. All right, so how did we get here? How, did you, how, did we, how in the world do you get from the, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom of God, to the forgiveness-only story? Uh, well, here's how. And again, I'm hitting high points on this. This is so complex. You could literally teach like for years on this. Um, but we don't have years. We've got like uh, 50 minutes. So um, we'll, we'll do this short version of it. Anybody know what happened in 1517? October the 31st, actually, we're coming up on it. Um, 
So October the 31st is, is Halloween, but in, in uh, higher Christology circles, it's also what? Reformation Day, right? Um, because October the 31st, 1517, a guy named Martin Luther, who was a Catholic uh, priest, nailed his 95 theses on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And um, these were his 95 theses that were outlying, or outlining um, the abuses and the uh, um, kind of the, the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And that began um, in, there were some precursors to Luther, but that really officially began the Protestant Reformation. Um, that Protestant Reformation went from Germany, and then simultaneously there was one um, by a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, Zwingli in Switzerland, and then um, there, there, were, uh, there was a reformation in Austria, in Spain, in France, all the way up into England. And this is where Henry VIII was like, we don't like the Roman Catholic Church anymore. He had his own reasons for doing that. Namely, um, he's a womanizer. But <clears throat> he, be, he started the Anglican Church or the Church of England. And then out of the Church of England, you had people who um, wanted to, you, you had the, uh, the people who were trying to reform the Church of England. And then you also had the people who were purists who ultimately were like, hey, um, we, we can't really exist in the way that the church is going on here anymore, and so we're leaving, <laughs> right? And they left, and where did they go? They came here, right? Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts, um, the Puritans, or as people ended up calling them, um, sometimes in a derogatory um, way, they um, said, hey, you guys are pilgrims, right? <laughs> like, y'all are, y'all are going over to the other side. Um, of the world. And so um, you, you had these reformations um, that really uh, shook, I mean, it really did like shake history, um, very formative in, um, in how things were going. So the Puritans, one, they wanted to leave the persecution under, um, you know, the, the, uh, the sovereigns in England. And then they also wanted to come over here, begin their own way of practicing Christianity and also to evangelize and engage the Indians, the Native Americans who lived um, here. So out of that, out of the, the Puritans coming here, from, um, from around 1730 until about 1755, um, you had um, what's called the First Great Awakening. All right, If you've uh, ever studied church history, this is a big part of, of uh, the history of the Christian church. And probably foremost in the First Great Awakening was the Puritan theologian. Anybody know his name? Jonathan Edwards. All right, and he went around for about ten years. He was on a preaching circuit, and uh, I believe in 1741, I believe he preached his famous sermon, um, "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." Well, what the Puritans did is is their theology um, of of the gospel shaped the way that they obviously presented the gospel. And so the gospel they were presenting was: you need to purify yourself, you need to sanctify yourself, you need to mature yourself. Um, into Christ, and, and then your conversion will be made sure. But if you're not mature, we're not sure you're saved, kind of thing. And so they emphasized um, sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Christ. They emphasized sanctification at the expense of certainty of conversion. So people were kind of constantly like, uh, yeah, um, the only way to really know you're elect is to uh, exhibit fruit of, of being uh, elect. But man, there's all kinds of chaos going on in my life. And so I'm not really sure that I am saved. I need to purify myself some more. I need to live a more chaste life. I need to live 
a, a more pure life, and then will have shown that I am elect. It was kind of this hyper-Calvinistic, um, you, you know, the, only the elect are saved, and you have to really try hard to show that you're elect kind of deal. So that was really the, the fruit of the First Great Awakening. There was a lot of good things that came out of that, but also in regard to our story, a lot of things that were foundational to set up really bad habits for us. All right. Next, from 1790 to 1840 was the Second Great Awakening, right? And some people argue about this, but there's, there ends up being four Great Awakenings. It's kind of like, man, how many times are you going to wake up, you know? Um, but these are great. They're Great Awakenings. And um, in the Second Great Awakening, one uh, among many, because this was a broader um, revival period or time, um, really lasting for about 50 years, um, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the foremost guys in, uh, in the Second Great Awakening was a guy named uh, Charles Finney. You guys ever heard of this guy before? All right. Finney was, uh, um, uh, he started out being a, a Presbyterian, but uh, it was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm uh, leaving my Reformed ways and, and uh, ends up, um, going out and and kind of starting his own brand of of Christianity, but but he was um, in response to the first Great Awakening and this this uh, high emphasis on on personal piety and purity and sanctification. He says, no, 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 no. All you have to do is they're like he emphasized instantaneous conversion. Like all you have to do is have this personalized experience with the Holy Spirit, and bam, you're you're converted. And really, in Finney's theology, he also was throwing in all of the sanctification into conversion. So so you're not just converted; you're like converted and mature, like all in one second. Um, so he he would have these he had this revi- he would have these uh, revivals. And uh, what's, what's funny, some of this stuff's funny to us because we weren't there um, and we live in a different context, but uh, he had the anxious bench. Have you guys ever heard of that, about this before? Um, he'd be preaching, and dude, y'all, y'all be glad, all right, because these guys would preach for hours. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it's just like an event. Um, but he would have this anxious bench, and he had people down there, and he was like, okay, if you want to become a Christian... And and you think you might, but uh, you think you might want to become a Christian, but you're not really sure, or whatever. Or if you feel convicted, and you don't really know what to do. Come down here, and and these people would like aggressively like pray over them, and like you know, uh, it, it it almost became this really um, not almost it was this kind of odd um, event where people were like, come on, you know, become a Christian. Here we go. Like they're encouraging them, and the people on the anxious bench are like, I don't know what to do. You know, they're weighing this thing. Um, uh, but but the the kind of the kind of come forward the altar call um, was really popular during this time and so while while uh, Edwards and his theology was over here um, what Finney did was say no 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 that's wrong and he swung it um, the pretty much to the other extreme so you have to totally purify yourself before you become a Christian which is kind of like the exertion of your will that shows your elect all the way over to, no, 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 all you have to do is just kind of um, believe these basic beliefs about Christianity, and, and uh, bam, you're in. You know, you're in, and, and uh, it, it became this, um, not necessarily what we would call easy believism today. There were uh, some nuances to that, but it was kind of the, the groundwork for that. Um, so e- emphasis on instantaneous conversion at the expense of sanctification. All right? Excuse me. Then from 1900 to 1910, um, uh, well, let's back up a little bit, and then I'll get to the 1900. 
So <clears throat> the emphasis on instantaneous conversion, it, 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 there, there, there was a problem with this because Finney and, and guys like him who were doing altar calls and just come down and believe, people would, would respond to this emotional call to believe they would come down, they would say a prayer, they would receive the Holy Spirit and then go off and, and live their lives as if nothing had ever happened. And so you had this massive group of people who um, were nominally Christian who said, yes, I believe, but then functionally their lives never changed. They never exhibited any kind of fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so it was this, it was this foundation for... Um, it was this foundation for, for what ended up becoming a second baptism or a reconversion or a, in Baptist circles that I grew up in, right? You became a Christian, you were converted, and then it was extremely common. In fact, some people did it multiple times where they would come down front and do what? They would rededicate their lives, right? I'm just not sure. So I'm going to, have you ever heard this? I'm going to go nail it down, right? Um, like, and I'm sitting there going, what, <laughs> what's happening right now? <laughs> and so, um, and Finney and those guys were also asking the same question. They were going, wait a second, what ha- what's happening right now? And what that did was, um, uh, what that did was set the foundation for the rise of Pentecostalism. Um, the Azusa Street revivals in 1901 in Southern California, right? You had, you had uh, out, out of these revivals, you had people who had already claimed to know Christ, and yet they were having this, they were having this reconversion experience. They were having this experience that, that now what Pentecostals and Charismatics would call a second baptism or a baptism into the Holy Spirit. So I received the forgiveness of God, but then later I'm going to receive the Spirit of God. Right? It became this dual, um, kind of this dual or, or progressive salvation, um, which, in my opinion, is not biblical. That's a whole other class. All right? The other side of the fence, so that, that was kind of the rise of Pentecostalism. The other side of the fence was the rise of fundamentalism. So in response to the, uh, the, the charismatic movement, you had the fundamentalists who were saying, no, 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 there is no second baptism. There's just this. And so you had these five Literally, you can go back and read them, these five fundamentals of Christianity that we would look at and be like, okay, yeah, um, I agree with those. Um, and, and so out of fundamentalism, you had, no, all you have to do is, is believe these five basic things and then um, adhere to the strict moral code that we have put in place that really was, um, uh, you know, hearkened back to the days of the Puritans. Um, the ones who said, no, you have, to, you have to live rightly. You have to do these things to show that you're elect. And, and so for, for the Pentecostals, it was kind of this second baptism. For the fundamentalists, it's, no, just, just believe rightly, emphasis on doctrine, and, and, uh, and then uh, from there, try to live a really good life. Um, the problem with the fundamentalists is um, when they tried to re- live a really good life, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, they didn't do it. Right, so so you had a lot of people who believed rightly, but functionally their life was still a total train wreck, right? Um, and and uh, and we see definitely you know remnants of this today. And then lastly, um, you also had um, a, there was a guy um, he was a Swiss theologian, a guy named uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, I don't know why I don't know what Schleiermacher means, um, but I'm glad it's not my name. Um, but Friedrich Schleiermacher, who, who was kind of a precursor to uh, the, the rise of liberal theology and, and out of kind of this liberalism and out of uh, uh, liberal theology came the social gospel, 
which was you don't even necessarily have to believe the right things and you don't even necessarily have to have this like reconversion or rebaptism or second baptism in the Holy Spirit. You just need to be you just need to be socially active to try to do good things in the public square. Right? So all of these things were happening simultaneously. I mean the turn of the century the turn of the century from the, you know, uh, uh, from the 19th to the 20th century was like um, crazy. Because you also at this time, um, excuse me, you also had the Industrial Revolution. You had all of the, the uh, massive um, kind of kingpins in, uh, in, in American economics. I mean, you had uh, uh, Rockefeller and Carnegie and all of these guys all at the same time. It was crazy, crazy time. Um, the car was invented. yeah. Um, Henry Ford, right? Um, so um, this is a really interesting time. Um, what ended up happening was World War I, <laughs> which is one thing, um, which, which kind of spurred the social gospel, but also discouraged it at the same time. And, and then a post-World War I during the Roaring Twenties when everything with the, the economy was good and really was being set up um, for the Great Depression, um, you had this uh, liberalism and, and fundamentalism divide. You guys remember the Scopes trial? Um, where the fundamentalists tried to make it illegal to teach uh, Darwinian evolution in schools. That happened in 1925, right? So that was kind of the, the apex of this liberal theology versus fundamentalism theology kind of butting heads with one another. Um, and the liberals were saying, no, just try to do socially good. It doesn't really matter what you believe um, as long as you're socially doing good. And the fundamentalists were like, no, 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 no. Like, almost to the point where they're like, no, you don't have to do anything at all. You just have to believe the fundamentals, right? And they really were saying you don't have to do anything at all in response to the liberal theology that says, no, all you have to do is do stuff in, in, in the world, okay? Um, I know that this is, uh, if you don't like history, this is kind of like, eh, why are you talking to me right now, right? Um, but I'm telling you, when we're talking about story, um, then hopefully here in a second you're going to see like, oh, that's why I've believed that all these years and have never even challenged it, right? Because believe me, you are a product of the people who came before you. And they're a product of the people who came before them. And they're a product of the people who came before them. You do not believe in a vacuum. Nobody does, right? So we don't just need to know why we believe. You don't need to know what you believe. You need to know why. Um, is it biblical? What, how have we gotten here, right? Um, well, what ends up happening is, is after the, this, the, really the liberalism fundamental divide has never healed itself. World War II happened, which, which largely diminished liberal theology because liberal theology was pushing toward this utopian society, and then along comes Hitler, and bam, totally destroyed the whatever idea of greatness or utopian society that we had was just right down the drain. Um, and then post-World War II, from 1950 until about 1990, you, you really had this theological entrenchment. You had the, you had the uh, kind of the social gospel liberal people who entrenched themselves to say, no, all you have to do is just be active in social gospel, um, in, in social activism. Social justice is a huge term for them. All you have to do is be active in that. And the fundamentalists were saying, no, you're totally leaving out the substance of the gospel. And so all you have to do is believe right? All you have to do is just assent to these fundamental beliefs and you're good. And what that, what that accomplished for us was this nasty little bug called evangelical Gnosticism. You guys know what Gnosticism is? 
Gnosticism was one of the early Christian heresies. It was, it was probably one of the earliest Christian heresies that said that the material world, all of the material world, if you can see it, smell it, touch it, experience it with your senses, then it's evil and bad, right? And so the material world is bad. The spiritual world, your soul, is good. And so uh, there was a large emphasis on knowledge. There was a large emphasis on on cultivating your spirit um, until ultimately, and that's, that's what the Gnostics believe. They believe that Jesus came, that he was spirit only, and that he came and through his secret message, or gnosis, which is the Greek word, which is where Gnosticism comes from, um, that through the secret knowledge, you can be freed um, and, and experience salvation um, from the body to some ethereal sky palace where your spirit goes when you die. You ever heard that before? Right? And so um, a lot of common terms that you'll hear over the last couple of decades is, hey, man, especially people who aren't happy with their body, They'll be like, I, you know, man, when death comes, I'm going to be separated from my body and I'm going to go, my soul is going to go to heaven. You know, kind of this, I'll fly away, right, is the imagery that you get there. Um, like, I'm going to leave my body behind and fly away to this celestial sky palace where I've got my ticket to heaven and, and security for my celestial real estate so I can have my little mansion up there and kind of fly around shooting Cupid arrows at one another for all eternity, singing Kumbaya. Right, and that's kind of the um, uh, generally that's the narrative that the forgiveness only position produces. Um, it, it produces a, it produces a gospel divorced from any kind of like biblical narrative that God actually cares about the world, that He's moving in the world, that He's redeeming the world, that Jesus's death is not just to forgive you and send you to another place. Right. So. Um, Man, we are largely influenced, if, if, if we're not already in it, we're largely influenced by uh, um, other evangelicals around us that are telling us the wrong story. Well, what does the Bible say about it? <clears throat> well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created something good. <laughs> All right, over and against evangelical Gnosticism, um, it says that God created it and he looked at everything that he had made and he said, it's good. And not only it's good, it's what? It's very good, right? Um, it's great. I mean, God's looking at it and he's going, I'm celebrating this. Like, I made that. Um, check it out. It's kind of like, uh, you guys ever seen Castaway, right? Um, Tom Hanks is over there. Ah, oh, have made fire. You know, he's celebrating the fact that he's made fire, right? Um, in some weird connection to Castaway, right? <laughs> um, Yahweh is saying, hey, I made this and it's good. Um, and, and even in that sense, like Tom Hanks is celebrating something that God has made. It's good. Um, Genesis one thirty one. he looked at everything that he had made, and, it, and behold, it was very good, right? And then what's crazy, so God makes the stars and the heavens and, and the earth and the water and, and, and everything on the earth, and then out of the earth, he makes you and me. God created us, you and me, in, in, in his image. There's a typo. Um, he created us in his image um, specifically to participate with him in his creation. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, it says, um, Therefore let us make man in, in our image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then he told them, be fruitful and multiply. Right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. So God creates something that's good. It's very good. And then he puts us on the earth to say, fill the, fill the earth with more of you. He's, he's made us kind of... Um, 
uh, not co-creators, but, um, but, but, but uh, the instruments whereby his creation is propagated. We get to participate with God in his creative act. Isn't that crazy? Like, I have two sons. One of them was born eight weeks ago. And I promise you, I've seen both of my sons naturally born. And that is the craziest thing I've ever seen, right? It's totally nuts. And I'm sitting there going, I'm going, oh my gosh. And here, like, there were physically, there were two of us. And now there's three of us. What in the world, <laughs> right? And, and in the midst of that, like, um, it's this beautiful thing whereby now, I mean, every time I look at my son and he, it's, it's, he's, he's in this fun stage where he mimics your facial, you know, stuff. Um, and so I'll get down and be like, hey, my and he's like, you know, and I'm like, you want to talk to daddy? You go, Ooh, and he goes, Ooh. <laughs> it's just a lot of fun, right? I mean, he's, he's, uh, he, he's another human being with his own, he's made in the image of God. God created Miles and Nate, both. He created them, but he used Margaret and myself um, as his instruments for creation. That is crazy. We participate with God in his creation. And not only that, but we also rule over the world. We are the apex of his creation. Um, and he saw that and he said, you're participating with me. I'm making you like my ambassador. I'm making my, you my under ruler. Um, I, I'm, I'm coming to dwell with you, to live with you um, in this. And guess what, guys? We rejected that story. <laughs> we said, no, thank you. We don't want to be your under rulers. We don't want to be your, um, the instruments whereby you um, uh, fill this very good world that you've created we want to write our own story. We want to write our own narrative. We want to go our own way. And so in an attempt to write our own narrative, things went, I mean, naturally they did. Things went naturally really horribly, right? Um, Genesis chapter 3, 4 to 6. In fact, that's the temptation of, of the enemy, right? He says, well, first of all, he says, did God really say that? Um, which casts doubt on the reliability of of the trustworthiness of, of Yahweh. And then, and then um, Eve looks at, um, and in fact, and, and then the enemy goes on to say, he says, uh, um, he says, no, in fact, you certainly will not die. A lie, right? Um, y'all, were y'all here a few weeks ago when Blake Holmes did his uh, sermon on identifying the lie, right? Um, so there, there it is. Like, you certainly will not die. Whoa, I can identify that one, right? That's a lie. Um, and, and, uh, and then the enemy goes on to say, um, no, actually... Um, he told you that because if you eat of this fruit, you will what? You will be like God. There's, there's that sweet morsel, right? There's that, there's that honeycomb going down smooth. I want to be like God. Right? I want to write my own story. I want to be my own uh, master. And, and so uh, Eve takes it and eats it and gives it to her husband, passive husband, and he eats it. Um, and then... Uh, that man, everything goes downhill from there. You know the rest of the story, right? So just so Genesis uh, the four to the the rest of the story um, is really about God um, saying, actually, no, um, I reject your false narrative. I reject the lie that you bought into, right? And now because you bought into the lie, you're a slave to the lie. But I'm not a slave to the lie. And so Yahweh, in his grace, in his sovereignty, in his grace, Jesus comes and reverses our false narrative, 
right? He, he rejects our false narrative. He rejects the lie. And what he does is says, look, um, I'm, I'm inviting you to come back into my story. I want to reinsert you back into the narrative that I'm writing, right? I want, I want to insert you back into the, to the original purpose that I created you for, to be a ruler, um, to, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. And so he tells us, he tells the disciples, he says, so um, all authority is in, in heaven and on earth has been get, given to me. Therefore, um, go and make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey, teach them to observe, teach them to walk in the way. Um, teach them to walk in my narrative, right? Teach them to walk in the right story. And, and, and uh, I, I will be with you. Um, anybody on the journey? Anybody reading the journey? All right. Um, so a few weeks ago, uh, my journey deal got published, and this is what I wrote about. Um, I wrote about that, that little phrase at the end of Matthew's gospel where he says, I am with you always. Right? So it's not just that, that we get fire insurance and, and, and are going. No, God has, God has said, no, I'm, I'm saving you to empower you to do what I originally wanted you to do. Um, th- this is an epic story that's unfolding. It's, it's not just about you getting fire insurance and going to celestial, some celestial sky city. Um, guys, the celestial sky city does not exist. Right? Um, what heaven is going to be is the earth, the new earth, the way it was always supposed to be. It's going to be the earth redeemed, restored, renewed. Um, it's going to be that part where God, again, steps back. And, and when, when all dominion and authorities and powers have been crushed by his son and the, and the son of God gives everything back to the father and, and, and the father is going to step back and be like, it is very good. Right? That's heaven. Is this the new earth? It's, it's, it's this not broken. <laughs> it's this not stained by our sin. It's this um, with us um, exercising the authority that, that, that the Father has given to us under his story. Um, that's heaven. Um, we're not going to be flying around shooting Cupid arrows at each other, right? Um, we're we're going to be working in conjunction, um, co-participants with God in his creation, um, exercising the authority that he's given to us for all eternity. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. God looks at me and he says, that is very good. He's reinserting us back into the original story. That is the nature of salvation. Not to, not to keep you out of hell, right? Keeping you out of hell is consequential. That's just, a, that's just a, um, something that is a consequence of actual salvation, right? Um, the, so the story is ongoing. Um, Jesus is still taking on disciples, Right? Um, he's, he's not just coming to be like, man, I hope, I, hope all, I hope as many of them as possible will receive my forgiveness so I don't have to send them to hell. You know, I mean, there is, there is obviously the fact that, that Jesus does not delight in sending people to hell, right? Um, but, but I think his, his focus is, no, um, I, I don't just want you to avoid hell. I want you to enter into my life. That's why his invitation to, to us is, come to me. Everybody who's weary and heavy laden, everybody who's tired of your own narrative, Everybody who's tired of writing your own story and going your own way, right? Come to me. Everybody who's weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
Right? Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy, right? And my burden is light. The narrative, the story that I created you for, that I want to put you in, that story is the story that I, that I want to yoke you into. And it's easy, guys. It's the reason that you were created. Um, that's why, apart from Jesus, you cannot experience it because it doesn't exist. So Jesus says, I, look, guys, I'm coming to give you life, and I'm coming to give you life to the fullest. John chapter 10, verse 10. Um, the, the Spirit is healing us. He's restoring us to our original purpose. So the gospel narrative uh, juxtaposed against the forgiveness-only narrative is this. The end is not heaven, right? The end is not going to heaven when you die. The end is what? The end is God himself, right? And because the end is God himself, as a result of that, other people. Because, like, like uh, Ryan said so eloquently when he quoted, um, what was that, Mark 4? Matthew 4. 419, bam, love it. Matthew 419, where, where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men, right? This is about all of, and so what Jesus is saying is, this is all about me. And when it's all about me, as a result, it will become about other people. Um, because I'm writing a story and other people are part of that story. And I want you to go invite them back into the story that they, that they rebelled against, right? I want you to go show them that, hey, when you get tired of writing your own narrative, then, then the real story is over here. And, and I want you to come enter into it because this is where the real life is found, right? Heaven is consequential. Yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, um, when, when, you go after, when you go after heaven... Um, then you miss God, and so you miss everything. Um, when you go after God, you get God and heaven thrown in. Secondly, the means is forgiveness. Absolutely. This is one of the right parts about forgiveness only um, narrative. Um, but the means is forgiveness not as an end to itself. The means is forgiveness, and, and the, the end, ultimately, it, it is, is it's, it's reorienting you into um, a new narrative. It's, it's what, what forgiveness is for is to say, you've been writing your own story. I've forgiven you. I've, I've rejected and both, I've both rejected and forgiven your narrative, and I'm putting you back into my narrative. So I'm, I'm now empowering you to reorient your life under the right story. Thirdly, there is no distinction between a Christian and a disciple. Um, when Jesus saves someone, he saves them to empower participation with him. Um, I mean, I, I, sometimes I wonder where it's, I wonder what, what I, I really do, I wonder what Jesus would say if someone was to come up to him and say, hey, Jesus, um, I want you to forgive me, but I don't want to have anything to do with following you. I mean, I literally think he might scratch his head and be like, what are you talking about? Right? The reason I'm forgiving you is so that you can follow me. <laughs> right? Because I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. 
You don't, um, I mean, if you're forgiven, but you don't follow, then, then um, you've totally missed the purpose um, for forgiveness. And, and frankly, I'm just, um, on, on the scale of that, I think it's much better, in, instead of drawing a distinction between a Christian and a disciple, I think it's much more biblical to say, no, every Christian is a disciple. I think the question is just, in what stage of, of maturing or what stage of development are you in? Are you a baby disciple? And you've been a baby disciple for a really long time, which is kind of that weird, like, you know, perpetual infant. Look, guys, just because you grow old in Christ doesn't mean you grow up in him, right? So, I mean, there's the aspect of, um, there's the aspect of, have you been a baby disciple for a long time? Or has, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has the Spirit developed you um, through the kind of the phases of discipleship um, to mature you into Christ's likeness? See 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 7 through 18. And that's what that whole section talks about. So Jesus saves us for a purpose to empower participation with him in his mission. Um, Again, follow me and you will fish for men because that's what I'm doing. (laughs) I mean, it's like, if you follow me, you're going to do what I do and I'm fishing for men. So come with me. Um, Let's fish together, just like Ryan said before. Um, Discipleship is about cultivating intimacy with Jesus, through the Spirit. It's not about managing your behavior. If you attempt to manage your behavior, you will always fail every single time. If you cultivate intimacy with Jesus, Jesus will change your behavior. That's a major, massive difference. If you try to manage your behavior, you will fail every time. If you grow in intimacy with Jesus, Jesus will change your behavior. It's, it's, it's amazing to me how many people, and, and, and I'm, I'm looking at my own life as well, looking at areas of my life where I'm like, if I'm honest with myself, I'm like, man, um, I'm trying to manage that. Apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in my life, I'm, I'm actually quenching the Spirit through my attempts to be moral. What in the world? We're all jacked up, man. <clears throat> we really are. Um, even, when, even when we don't think we're sinning, we're sinning. Um, and that's part of the work of the Spirit of, of kind of unpeeling um, the onion that we are. <clears throat> because of all of this, I mean, um, you're, you're talking about a God who said, this is very good, and, I, and you're a ruler with me, and I want to restore you back into the narrative that I've created you for. I want to empower you to live the, the kind of life that I want you to live. And so God is intimate. He's personal. He's inviting you in. He's the, he's the come to me, everybody who's weary um, and, 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 and t- just tired, tired of your own narrative, and I'll give you rest. Um, I'll restore you to what I've created you for, um, to, to be a, uh, uh, a participant with me in what I'm doing, um, to, to enter into the divine life. And so because of that, when, 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 when you live your life under that story, then evangelism does not become this, yeah, I'm offering you this like 779 El Camino, right? Um, evangelism becomes a very personal interactive invitation to invite someone else who's tired of their own narrative into the narrative that they were created for. I mean, it's you going and being like, look, man, um, seriously, you can try that all day long, um, but when you get tired of it, um, I'm over here. Um, I am going to be um, the voice of Jesus to call you to uh, repentance, to, to call you to come. Um, and, and find rest, and, and find the purpose for which you were created. Um, 
It, it, it was, it, it, it's, it's switching narratives. I want you to switch stories. I want you to quit writing your own narrative that's resulting in chaos and death, entropy, decay, all of that jazz. And I want you to enter into the narrative, the only narrative that can bring you life. Um, so this is repentance. Todd Hunter wrote a great book. It's called Christianity Beyond Belief. I would encourage you to get it um, if you've never read it. But he said this about repentance. He said, repentance, properly understood, should become like gravity, pulling every area of our present and future life into the story of God, into God's narrative. It's not just a reconsideration of our sinful past. So it's not just like, okay, look at what I was, man. Thank God that's forgiven. Um, And then we kind of like become uh, champions of our past, right? No, the, um, the, the, the past should be considered, but not considered alone. Now, repentance includes all the activities and attitudes necessary to spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. It is the implementation process of switching stories. I love that. Repentance is the implementation process of switching stories. You're going from one story being driven by that narrative to another story. Okay? All right, so it's 8.17 right now. I want you to take about um, eight minutes. So eight, let's go to 8.25. And uh, I want you to just uh, kind of huddle up in your circles at the table that you're in. And I want you to ask, ask yourselves this question. All right? Um, uh, what, what story of those two narratives, of the forgiveness-only narrative or of the gospel narrative, um, which one of those are you most familiar with? Which one of, the, which one of those have you been most, been most influenced by or discipled in? Okay, And then the secondly is, what can you do to either shift narratives away from the forgiveness only into a gospel narrative, or if you, or if you have been discipled deeply into the gospel narrative, what can you do to establish that? So, or, or to continue to establish that? So well, uh, first question um, which story are you most, most familiar with um, and why, really? And then secondly, um, what can you do to become more centered in the gospel narrative? So y'all take about um, eight minutes, and we'll be back up here in a minute. All right, I'm going to tie us up. We've got about four minutes left, so um, if you were in the middle of a conversation and you'd like to continue that, wait for four minutes, <laughs> all right, and, uh, and you'll be good. So um, I want to I challenge a little bit... Um, uh, typically, and you've, you heard me say this uh, at the beginning of, the, uh, of our time, about the diagnostic questions, right? So the diagnostic questions we have um, are um, really, they fit pretty nicely into the forgiveness-only narrative, right? Like, hey, if you die, um, how confident are you go, that you go to heaven when you die? So really, even the way we ask the questions, it's about going to heaven when you die, right? Um, which, which, frankly, I mean, uh, is, is a fair assessment. I mean, I Typically, and I use these questions, um, I don't use them uh, exclusively. I talk, I talk about other stuff as well um, to tie in uh, the biblical narrative. But um, on the di- so, so the diagnostic questions, it's good, it's good to diagnose basic beliefs. So if we're just looking at, hey, do you understand these basic tenets of, of Christianity, then, then, then they're effective for that. So the second one, if you were to die right now and God asks you why he should let you into heaven, heave, <laughs> right? There should be an end there. Um, you could tell um, that uh, this last few sides, I was <clears throat> hurried. But if he asked you why he should let you into heave, 
um, what would you say, um, and, or into heaven, what would you say? So that, again, is kind of like, hey, how do you get into heaven? It's, it's kind of the ultimate um, thing. And, 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 and so while, while that's good at diagnosing basic belief, it's bad at reorienting narrative. Do you see what I'm saying? And so while, while I'm not saying we should throw these out, because they are good at diagnosing basic belief, I'm also saying you should not use these alone. So here's some other questions that I would encourage you to use. Um, If you knew that you were going to live tomorrow and the next day and for a long, long time, who would you follow? That's a good question. That's reorienting narrative. That's reorienting the story. It's not about you dying. It's about you living. Who are you going to live for? And based on that question, obviously you can ask multiple follow-up questions. Well, I'm going to live for myself. Well, how do you think that that's going to end up for you? How has it worked for you so far? Right? Um, I mean, some really obvious follow-up questions that would be great at reorienting like, hey, actually, I think Jesus meant for you to live um, for, for him. And then because you live for him, to live for others. Um, another one. Um, around what story or what narrative would you organize the various parts of your life? So another way to ask this is, what currently defines your life? Um, and, and I think what you'll find is, uh, because a lot of people have not even challenged their own story, that when you ask them a question like this, it's going to cause a lot of self-examination. It's going to cause them to be like, uh, actually, I don't really like my story. If, if most people are honest, they don't like the story they're in. Right, which is why everybody's on Prozac and antidepressants. Right? I mean, um, we're, we're we're searching for something that's that's not there. We're grasping for the wind. Um, thirdly, what kind of person would you be um, if you organized your various parts of your life around this? So, so you're casting a vision for what they can be under the narrative, under the story that God has is writing for them. Um, how, how do you determine that answer? Um, with two question marks, right? Um, how, do you de- how do you determine um, that answer that, that hey, I want to be this kind of person? Um, so, look, tonight, the, the basic goal of, of, of tonight is just to say, when you do evangelism, make sure while you're sharing the gospel, those, which, frankly, is going to look like those basic beliefs, right? When you're sharing the gospel, share it in the context of the biblical narrative, Share it in the context of the right story so that when you say, hey, paint the corner, (laughs) that the person gets what you're saying, right? So that when someone says, I'm saved, it just doesn't mean for them, whew, I'm not going to hell or I'm going to heaven. But, But that now, like, the very natural next step for them is to enter into, which they functionally have, to enter into a life of discipleship to Jesus, whereby he will use them to go fish for men. And not just for the sole purpose of fishing for men, but so that he can accomplish this epic story that he's writing and that we get to be a part of. Right? Um, that, that's why evangelism should not be weird if you share it in the right context, if you share it under the right narrative, right, to the glory of God. So hopefully tonight was helpful for you to um, think about that. Um, please, please, like we said, when you get that email from Sylvia, um, please sign up for Unashamed. That, that I promise you, I've, I've literally, Ryan, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about the weekend other than, man, I'm tired, <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> but um, it, that'll be a great experience. If you've never experienced that before, I'd highly encourage you 
to do that. And, uh, and hopefully the rest of this class um, will be a huge encouragement for you that, that we might um, grow in our discipleship to Jesus under the right narrative, under the right story, that we would see ourselves as, as God sees us, as participants with him in his mission um, for his glory. Um, Lord, we love you. Um, we thank you that you have uh, allowed us and invited us in. Um, I pray that we would live in light of that story every day, every hour, every minute, every second of our lives, that all of our, that, that all of our lives would be permeated by the power of the gospel, um, that we might uh, glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.